This is an ABC podcast. In the United States, at the entrance to Boston Harbour, there's a very old lighthouse that was built way back in colonial times, before America's Revolutionary War, and the lighthouse is still functioning. The Boston Light, as it's known, has sat on a little island for more than 300 years. Boston Light did not get off to a very promising start when it was built from granite way back in 1716. The first two keepers met dismal ends, falling into the sea and drowning just days into their postings. But there is something about this tower that sits on the edge of the cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean that captivated Sally Snowman as a child. Sally Snowman is the first woman to be the keeper of the Boston Light. And she's the last one, too, because soon Boston Light will change hands from the United States Coast Guard to an entity that is as yet unknown. And Sally will have to say goodbye to Boston Light. Hello, Sally. Welcome. Hi there. Tell me when you first lay eyes on the Boston Light. (laughs) Um, when I was a young child, and I'm 70 years old, so I would say I probably saw it 70 years ago, although I would have been just an infant. But my first experience with it, where you know, personal and upfront, is when I was 10 years old. And we lived by the water, and I grew up on boats. And on a hot summer's day, Dad would come home from work, and we'd go out on the boat to get cooled off. We'd go out into the edges of the Atlantic Ocean and then come home and go to bed. And I had the first opportunity to actually visit Little Booster Island, Boston Light, when I was 10. So I always loved lighthouses. My parents read me stories, you know, sea stories and lighthouse stories. And we'd always go out and see Boston Light. And I got the opportunity to go onto the light. We anchored the boat, rode into the beach. I stepped off onto the rocky shores and I looked up at the lighthouse and said, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to get married out here. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) And then I always fantasized, you know, what it would be like to be a keeper at at a lighthouse. That was one of my fantasies. And at this time, the ones that were manning the island back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s were male. It was called a, um, a stag duty for men only. So any hope that I had to be able to do that wasn't realistic to me. But that all changed with um, joining the Coast Guard Auxiliary, the volunteer component of the Coast Guard. And they started giving tours out there by the National Park Service in 1999. And I had an opportunity to become a tour guide out there and actually training other Coast Guard auxiliarists. And I just sort of made a big leap and I'll try to close that. I've been in the auxiliary for 46 years now, met my husband in the auxiliary. We got married out there in 1994. And what was the wedding like on the island? (laughs) It was a beautiful October day. And October can be sort of blustery and cold. And this was um, low 70 degrees, the sun was out, and it was very small. We only had 24 people come out. And the way you get on the island is by going up to the face of the pier, crawling up 
a ladder and then getting onto the pier and then walking onto the island proper. And did you do that in your wedding dress, Sally? <laughs> well, actually, um, it, it was a simple cotton dress because I knew that I was going to be climbing the ladder and being on a windswept island. And uh, the minister came out, and when we asked him if he ever got seasick, did he like boats? And he said, well, no, I'm not really that fond of boats. And yes, I have a tendency to get seasick. And, I would, and he said, why? And he said, we would like you to marry us out on Boston Light. And all of a sudden, all his thoughts about seasickness and not wanting to be on boats, he accepted immediately without even knowing how he was going to get there or how far away it was or anything like that. What's the romance of Boston Light for you then, Sally? What is it that you love, really love about this place? Well, um, lighthouses always fascinated me. And I always saw it from a spiritual perspective it, of protecting, being protected, being a spirit into itself, looking over us, over the planet, that yeah, bad things are going to happen, but everything's going to be okay. And how important the lighthouses are not just to be aids to navigation, to be way shows of safe ways and to get into a harbor. The, with all the history that we have of lighthouses around the world and how dedicated those lighthouse keepers had to be. And that, there were times when they would be on the islands months at a time that they would have minimal rations, sometimes running out because the weather wouldn't allow for deliveries or a change of crew, things like that. So there's just a whole idea of what the keeper is and what the responsibilities are. And for me, I think it has to do with your personality. You need to be able to be in solitude. Um, and, and if you're in one of those lighthouses that are just the pillars coming right out of a rock out of the sea, as opposed to Little Booster Island where I have a you know acre and a half to walk around. So when you take on the role as lighthouse keeper, you live quite a lonely life, but you do that to give comfort to people coming in from the ocean because as they come in from the ocean, they see that light and feel the comfort and the presence of, of coming home. That's what you give when you become a lighthouse keeper. Yes, keeping that light going, keeping that fog signal going. So how did you then become a lighthouse keeper yourself, Sally, after being a volunteer going out to the island? How were you then promoted to become the first female lighthouse keeper? Uh, well, what happened is the Coast Guard at that time was thinking about doing a transfer, looking for a new owner. And the first step was to start removing the active duty personnel off the island. There were three of them. And they came up with this idea to hire a civilian keeper that has no law enforcement on the payroll as a civilian employee with the Coast Guard, and then use Coast Guard Auxiliary to man the island. So because I've had experience out there since 1994, and my husband and I did five years of research and we wrote a book about Lost and Light, and in uh, 1999, the Coast Guard appointed me the historian for Boston Light. So it happened in 2003 when they were looking for a keeper out there. They did a national search. I applied. I got the job. And it was supposed to be a temp job, 18 months to two years. And at the last hour uh, in the summer of 2004, the whole deal fell through. And now I'm on my 19th year. 
Yeah, what were you doing before? What career did you give up to become the lighthouse keeper? I was a college professor. Uh, (laughs) I am an educational specialist by trade. I taught in the master's program at a small liberal arts college on the outskirts of Boston. And I was there for 17 years. And I left that for a leave of absence. And after four years, I finally said to the college, I don't think I'm coming back. <laughs> and, and I had been, been on the island and doing this job. I just couldn't imagine myself going back into the classroom and doing what I was doing. It was transformational for me to be living out in the island, meeting and greeting people from all over the world with the park service, bringing them out for the tours. When you said you were going to take the job, there would have been a lot of people around you saying, oh, she won't last long. I mean, you gave up a a really (laughs) important job as a college professor to man or woman, if that's the verb, a a lighthouse. And were there a lot of people saying, oh, she'll be back pretty quick, smart one. She actually has to get past the romance of lighthouse living and is confronted by the reality of it. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you should mention that because there was also an aura about having active duty Coast Guard personnel out there. So when they hired a civilian, it sort of diminished it. People go, oh, well, she's not the real keeper. Oh, oh. She's not wearing the blue Coast Guard uniform. And when I was hired, being a Coast Guard auxiliarist, I wore a Coast Guard auxiliary uniform, very similar to the active duty and reserves. And the captain said, well, Sally, you can't wear your auxiliary uniform anymore, but we want you to stand out from out the crowd. So what are you going to wear? And I said, just you wait and see. And what I did is I came up with a costume of um, late 1700s vintage. <laughs> and um, What, with a bonnet and everything like that? Yeah, yeah the bonnet. And, and because um, to buy them would have been very expensive because you couldn't go into a commercial clothing store and buy them. So I made them, the whole dress with the apron and scarf with it. So that is what I wear when I'm in the public. Sally, that's fabulous. I think that's amazing. And have you been living there full-time? Do you still live there full-time on the island? Unfortunately not. When I first started, the first winter that we were out there in 2003, the active duty weren't out there. So it was just myself and volunteers. And during the winter, with weather and sea conditions permitting, we probably were out there like 70% of the winter. Then one time I was out there during a winter storm and uh, with another female, a Zoe volunteer. It was supposed to be just a regular nor'easter. The winds of 40, 45 knots, maybe six, seven foot seas. It turned out to be a full blown blizzard with 20 foot seas and 60 knot winds. And it was coming up quickly. Well, when the Coast Guard called and said, you know, this Northeast is going to be a blizzard. We need to get you off the island. We're coming out right now to get you. And they were going to be there like in 20 minutes. And it's like, it's winter time. I can't, we have to drain the water from the pipes. There's all these shutdown procedures we have to do and uh, keep this house so it wouldn't freeze up and what have you. And I said, well, um, it's, it's either come off now or stay. So I said, oh, I'll stay. So what's it like to live through a blizzard on the edge of the open ocean, Sally? It was um, like I died and went to heaven. I was in <laughs> pure joy. I was in bliss. 
what a blizzard yeah. really can you can you even see i mean when you're up in the tower during a, a, an ocean blizzard coming can you even see through all the snow that and rain and, and sleet uh for, for a bit we couldn't at the, at the peak of it so it was like we we're just running around the house looking at this way coming from that direction another way coming from this direction and then during the night laying on the bed the seas would pound the back of the house and the bed was vibrating like it was a vibrator bed. How loud was it to live through that blizzard in the lighthouse? It, it was it was deafening. I mean, Audrey and I had to yell <laughs> to get each other's attention. It was just howling and, and whipping around the house. And then, of course, you had the seas. What happened is the, these huge seas were coming and pounding on this one and a half acre island, which is about the size of a football field. And it was a rocky shore. So you would hear it come thunderously onto the beach and then you'd hear it retreating as it's taking you know the stones and the pebbles and things away with it. So do you feel secure up there in the tower while all that's happening? Well we weren't in the tower. Uh, the tower is um, I'm going to say it's a spindle type with um, a spiral staircase that's 89 feet, feet tall and so we have a separate house and we have a, a boathouse on the island and a cistern building which houses our water from the rain and what have you so we weren't near the tower we were in the house it probably would have been safer if we were in the tower because the island is a drum one it has uh, like two hills to it and the tower is on the taller of the two hills so the waves didn't the waves didn't get to that one <laughs> it was getting to the house because the house was literally built on on the ledge rock on that part of the island. And then when it was all over and back on the mainland and whatever, I sent the pictures to the Coast Guard and they said, what were you doing out there? Things like that. What are the sunsets and sunrises like to look at? <laughs> right now you said that and I immediately went back onto the island. The sun rises on the east, sets on the west, and it wakes me up in the morning. And I do yoga. So I take my yoga stuff out if, a, if it was a good morning and um, do my yoga outside watching the sunrise. Is there anything in the way of wildlife there? To oh, yes. Oh, lots of wildlife. Birds. Uh, when the seagulls are cawing, they especially are very active at low tide because they like to feed on the, on the seaweeds and things like that. And they'll fly overhead and they'll be cawing, caw. And I'll be going around the island going, call, call, call. <laughs> and I was on watch with one of the volunteers. <laughs> and I because I sort of just lost myself. I usually don't do it with those that don't know me very well. And <laughs> and she, she said, you definitely have to get off the island. <laughs> so why is the Black Labrador the mascot of your service? The Black Lab is the Coast Guard's mascot. And how they got to be that is because they love people and they love to swim. So when we had the times of the life-saving service, for which we had uh, just uh, a mile away from us is the town of Hull, and there was a life-saving station there. So the lighthouse was in close proximity. So they launched the boat off the beach and they'd take their black lab with them. And it gave those that were shipwrecked in the area to hear the dog barking 
And then the, the dog would actually jump into the water and keep the people that are in the water that gave him hope. He'd bark, he would swim around them. And if one needed to hold on to him, whatever that happened. So that's how the life saving service and the lighthouse service were joined together as one in 1939. So the Coast Guard adopted the Black Lab. Did you have a Black Lab out there yourself to keep you company? We did. Um, his name was Sammy. And Sammy was the last official Coast Guard lighthouse dog in the country. He and I were big buddies. He died on the island in October of 2004. We knew he wasn't well, but he was such a trooper. He just held in there. My husband and I took our boat into Boston to the Coast Guard base to do some paperwork, came back, and there was no Sammy meeting and greeting us at the end of the pier. And I said to Jay, this isn't good. And um, he was having a nap uh, on the front lawn in front of the keeper's house, and he never woke up. So he died very peacefully on the island, and Jay and I buried him, and we have a stone for him. And did you replace Sammy? Well, we tried to, and the replacement dog wasn't, um, wasn't like Sammy. It's interesting. We named her Samantha Ann. It was a female dog, and she had spent the summer before out there to learn how to be a lighthouse dog. We were instructing to Sammy, okay, Sammy, you... You teach Samantha Ann, you know, how to be a good lighthouse dog. And she wasn't. We had media out there one day filming me. And Sammy went behind the producer that was directing the whole thing, walking backwards. <laughs> she deliberately went behind him and he <laughs> fell right over. Oh, bad dog. <laughs> so as soon as uh, the media left, I called the woman who donated the dog to the island and I said, get in your car, meet me in Hull, you're taking Samantha Ann. So let's go right back to the start of Boston Light. It was built in 1716. Was the tower of the lighthouse the same tower that is there today? Is it the same building, more or less? That's an interesting question because we were on a belief that the original tower that was built in 1716 was blown up by the British in 1776, the beginning of our American Revolutionary War that started here in Boston. And the British said, hey, if we can't have that tower, the revolution's not going to have it. So they blew it up on the way out of Dodge. British <laughs> anarchists blew up the lighthouse. <laughs> So once uh, the Revolutionary War was over, the state of Massachusetts rebuilt it in 1789. But what we didn't find out until a major restoration project took place in 2014, there were a lot of cracks in the tower, what have you. So they were chipping away what they could, and then they were putting a new protective cover on it. And I said to one of the contractors, look at that bright, dark pink granite. In, in this part of the country, there's no granite that's a deep cherry pink like that. What would cause it to be that? And he said, oh, something that's under pressure. And I said, like gunpowder blown up? And he said, yes. So I took lots of pictures of, the, of this cherry red. And what we discovered that the first 7 to 14 feet or 9 to 14 feet was the original tower. And then they just rebuilt it up to its 89 feet. 
So are you saying that the British attacks on it, that was what stressed the granite and turned it pink way back during the Revolutionary War? <laughs> well, um, they just used uh, regular gunpowder and they put it inside the base of the tower. So it blew the tower walls out. This would have been in the age before there was gas lights, certainly before there was electricity. How did they light the lighthouse in the 1700s, Sally? Well, way back with Worthy Lake, the first one that was there who, who perished within two years of his duty with his wife, his daughter, a friend in a sleep, they used regular candles, uh, table candles. You know, like you make a romantic evening at your table, you like candles. And it was a, what they call a candelaire. And it was described as having two rows of seven candles on each one. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, could they really see 14 candle power was from that 14? That would have been very, very bright. Well, I have to remember that these were colonial days where coming into Boston, as particularly this town of Hull, the people that lived there were living in huts. It wasn't a city. It was extraordinarily sparse with just trees. And then as you looked into the city and you're going into the harbor, there's islands all around, there would be no light or minimal light. So even seeing those 14 candles would have been bright, it would have been the only light that you would have seen versus other than the stars and the moon that are in the sky. And by the time that the Revolutionary War of 1776, they were doing oil lamps. So they had wicks that sat in oil, and then they would rough out metals and shine it up as best they can, and was using that as a reflective. But this was sooty, sooty fish oil and whale oil that make things very smoky in the lantern room. So those days, I just can't imagine being the keeper because the family had to work. The kids had to work. It was one keeper, a wife, and the gaggle of kids. And they all had work that they did. And just to keep those candles lit during the wintertime, when the sun sets at 4.10 at night and it doesn't rise until 7.04 the next morning, so when it's in the coldest and the worst weather is when they had to pull the longest all-nighters. What fortitude you had to have. What commitment that you needed to keep that job going. You said the first keeper, the keeper drowned with his wife, his daughter, a slave and a friend. All of them went down. What about the second keeper? What happened to him? Oh, <laughs> so they got the replacement keeper. That was just temporary uh, until they got a full-time one. Within three days, he drowned too. What would happen to them? Would they just be standing on the cliff and the, what a, a freak wave would take them? What they did is they had a like a rowboat that they rowed out from the island to go to a friend's sailing boat that was off the island. And they sailed into Boston so worthy they could get his pay. And then they came back and the sailboat anchored and they all went back into the rowboat. And for some reason, the boat overturned and they all drowned. And on the pier watching was Worthy Lake's other daughter and a friend that watched this whole thing happen without any way to try to save them. Did you ever think that might happen to you one day? And did that terrify you, that thought? <laughs> 
<laughs> my comment is what a way to go <laughs> yeah terrifying <laughs> while on duty serving my country a storm comes or whatever the mishap is and i drown uh, i'm so close to the ocean i grew up in it and i like to say that i have salt water in my veins not my blood so I would just assume drown. I think that's a noble way to die. And, and people would have said of you, Sally, what, whatever happened to that, that that Sally Snowman? Oh, oh, she <laughs> quit her job in special education to become a lighthouse keeper and was swept out to sea. It's like a character from a romantic novel of the 19th century. Oh, my gosh. The costume that I wear, the reason why I chose the one to be in um, in the 1780s is because Boston Light is not the oldest standing tower in the country. That one in the United States goes to Sandy Hook down in New Jersey. And visitors come to the island and they'll say, you know, this isn't the oldest standing tower in the country. And I'll say, oh, I know that. <laughs> and I'm not saying that we are, what we're saying, it was the first established light station in colonial America. That's the phrase that I use. So when I came up with my getup, I chose the 1780 vintage dress and the, that keeper that came out of the Re Revolutionary War, his name was Thomas Knox and his wife's name was Content. I, I think I am a reincarnated Content. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Sally, the light itself that's at the top of the tower, can you describe what it is and how it works? The one that we have out at Boston Light is nine feet tall, made up of 336 individual prisms. And when you see the sunlight hitting it, you can see all the rainbow colors that are in it. The light rotates on what we call chariot reels or chuck wheels with a one half horse motor engine that rotates this 4,000 pounds of glass and brass. So the frame is brass with these individual prisms slid in to hold them. And then there's 12 panels of them. And each panel has a round circle to it. And the way that a lens works is we have a 1,000 watt lamp in the middle of this nine foot crystal. And when it's rotating around, when the light gets into these, one of these bullseyes, it gets magnified to 2 million candle power that can be seen out to sea for more than 27 nautical miles. And that lens has been doing the shtick since 1859. So it's um, something like 130 years old. And one of the problems is we were in the 21st century with a um, 19th century device 
So sometimes the two centuries mechanism don't talk to each other. So the Coast Guard invests a lot of um, effort to maintain that light at the top of the tower. And I just love going up there and um, in the gear room, that's where the gear part is that rotates. I'll just sit there and watch the light rotate. And then at night, what's awesome is I'll, I'll be down on the ground and lay down and look up at the tower. And because I'm so close to the light, I can see 12 individual beams coming out each of those bullseyes. And they seem to drop down to the horizon and I feel so protected, like nothing can happen to me. And I just get um, mesmerized by it. Sally, you said you're also, apart from being the lighthouse keeper, you're also the historian of the lighthouse. How did you become this historian in colonial garb out there raising the flag and attending uh, to the lighthouse? My husband and I both love maritime history. And when we got married, a few weeks later, we went out in November and did our first watch. And the first thing we did is went through all the file cabinets and out in the boathouse and any place that there may be any little morsel that hadn't already been removed from the island for its history. And we found some older logbooks that dated back only a few years, 1880, um, in 1984. So I said to Jay, you know what? These other ones must be in the archive somewhere. So we did a five-year mission. We went to various archives, private and public libraries, including going down to Washington, D.C., to their place. And we collected a bunch of information and decided we wanted to write a book. And we wrote the book. We published at the end of 1999. It's about 280 pages with about 125 photos, what have you. And Jay and I were just auxiliarists when we started looking to interview people that we found in the records that had been out to Boston Light, children that were now adults, past keepers, things like that. And because we were just, just volunteers, they weren't very open with us. As soon as I got on the payroll, people were calling me, emailing me, wanting to talk. And it's like, you know, why didn't you want, why didn't you want to do this five years ago? So Jay and I could write another book the same size, just with the stories that had been shared by those who had lived there, been there in other decades. Tell me about some of the families you met who had lived on the island as lighthouse keepers that you met and you spoke to in order to tell the story of, of Boston Light? Well, one of the families that were out there, they were the Norwoods. So when Ralph Norwood came out to the island, he came in as the second assistant keeper, which is the lowest rank. And he came with five children and lived out there for 16 years. Now here it's a small island, and at that time there was what we call the principal keeper's house that was the head keeper, a single family house, and then there was a duplex house. The keeper's house is on the west end of the island where this assistant keeper's house was on the east, closer to the lighthouse, as well as the fog signal. And so the lowest person 
raided, had the right-hand side of the house, so it was closest to the fog signal, so they got the worst of the sound. <laughs> like the big foghorn literally goes off right next to the house. And then the second assistant was in the other side of the duplex. So um, I'm just imagining what it must have been like having three keepers, three wives, the Norwoods had nine kids, the other two keepers had five. So there were 19 kids, <laughs> three wives, three keepers, and just three outhouses. Living on an island the size of a football field. Mm -hmm. And um, if any of the kids used one of the other family's outhouse, <laughs> there would be a, a little revolution would take place on the island. <laughs> Uh, and, and so the kids, they needed to play on the east end of the island, not near where the, the keeper's house was, so that the keepers, the principal keeper's kids would come and, and play with them. They had four daughters, and we were bringing them out to the islands on a yearly basis to visit and tell us stories and things like that. And it's just amazing. They had so little but they were happy living on the edges of the ocean like that and going to school. The oldest daughter of the Norwoods, when she was 12 years old, she would take the station's boat and row herself and the other school-aged kids the mile to Hull, go to school and row back. And it wasn't even something they thought about. It was just something that they did. She'd row across the entirety of Boston Harbour every day with her siblings to take them to school <laughs> and back again. What years are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking the late 1920s, like 28, 29, all the way up to 1939. So would the kids have responsibilities on the island as well? Were they expected to help tend the lighthouse? Oh, they had to because there was so much to do. And that was one reason why it all started as a family lighthouse station is because everybody had to work. Even, you know, once a little three-year-old learned how to walk, they were, you know, tending the gardens or doing menial, little menial tasks. So they were put to work right away. And one of the things about living on the island and going to the mainland, sometimes they'd get to school and couldn't get back. I mean, the seas were just too rough. And so the lighthouse keepers had arrangements with friends and neighbors in the town of Hull that they would take one or two kids for the night. Lighthouse keeping was very much honored by the town of Hull and they would do all sorts of things to help the families out. They knew that the keepers didn't make much money so they would help out with providing some foods and cookies and at Christmas time gifts. So it was a really tight community between the town of Hull and um, the kids on Little Booster Island. Not everyone can be a lighthouse person like yourself. Were there married couples who went out there that split up because <laughs> of the life? I, yes, there was one in particular in the 1950s, around 1957. It was uh, a young couple. They came from down south somewhere, Tennessee or Mississippi or something like that. And the boyfriend joined the Coast Guard and was assigned to Boston Light. So at the age of 18, he was at the light. And then when he finally got leave, he got time off. He went back to his hometown, married his 17-year-old girlfriend, and brought her back to the island. So they're going to be in the part of the house that's the closest to the fog signal. 
and she had never seen anything bigger than a pond. <laughs> Just getting in the boat and coming for that 15, 20 minute boat ride to the island was terrifying for her. So she stuck it out for a while, but what was the final straw that finally pushed her off the island? During the winter, there was a bad storm and her husband left the house and there was a lot of battening down the hatches that they had to do to make sure that nothing was gonna get blown off the island, whatever. And so she watched her husband uh, walk away and he didn't come back. So they had a, a radio in the house. And so she called the Coast Guard station and said, my husband is missing. My husband is missing. You have to come and find him. Come get me off the island. Come get me off the island. <laughs> they go, ma'am, sorry, uh, we can't help you. <laughs> uh, you'll have to wait for your husband to come back. She was so scared. She actually went in under her kitchen cupboard and she stayed there. And then when her husband finally came home, he found her you know, terrified in the cupboard. And she said, get me off of this island right now. <laughs> and so he made arrangements to take her to the mainland. She found a cheap apartment in somebody's house. And then years later, when she was in her 70s, she came to the Boston area to visit relatives or something and bought a ticket to come out to Boston Light. And she came out to the island and she saw how beautifully gorgeous it was. And once the ranger pointed her out, I went right up to her and we started talking. And um, I kept on saying, don't you want to walk around the island? <laughs> don't you want to climb the tower? And uh, no, we had gone into the keeper's house that's still there and was talking. And so finally, I just started escorting her around the island so that she could just see the beauty and not just the west end of the island where the boat was tied up. And she said, oh my gosh, she said, I can't believe that all these years have passed and she was just afraid to come back. So I'm glad that before she passes, well, maybe she's already passed because that was a good number of years ago, that she had an opportunity to make peace with um, her you know, petrified experience out at the island. But I'm so glad I had that opportunity. It was enriching for me to be able to listen to her story and how petrified she was with that. And so one of the things that I do is I journal. So after the tour leaves and I have this conversation, I always make notes so that when I leave this job, that I will be doing a lot, a lot of writing. You were talking there about a time when in the 30s, 20s and 30s, when there were wives and a whole lot of kids running around the island, around the lighthouse. When did that age end? It's called the Lighthouse Modernization Project, and it kicked in in 1960. So 1960 is when it brought the family housekeeping to an end. It ended. For the most part, phased out for those that are on the mainland. But for those on the island, it just meant taking the families off. And because we knew that this was coming, the last family that was on the island that had children was in, um, he left in 1955. It turned out, I found out maybe seven years ago that that last family that was out there, uh, the name was Horton. And um, they had one child with them when they went out and they had a second one. And, and when it was an infant, they wanted to have them baptized and they were Protestants. So they just happened to go to the minister 
of the Protestant church that my family had belonged to for eons. So my sister Beverly, that was looking for the history of the church on its anniversary, I don't know which one it was, it's, I don't know, like it's 130th or something, she found photos. And there was a photo of the minister that baptized me <laughs> in the 50s, went out to Boston Light and baptized those two kids. And it was just, just these stories just weave. So although I had been proclaimed the historian for the island in, in 2000, just as a volunteer, all this stuff keeps on coming up. I've seen that video that's shot of you on the island that was made by the Smithsonian Institute, Sally, and you're dressed up in Revolutionary War era dress, hoisting up the US flag on Brewster Island where the lighthouse is. And it looks amazing. You look fantastic doing that. But there's also another historic character that you've modelled yourself on and wear the clothes of called Abby Burgess. Who was she? Yes, Abby Burgess. <laughs> I did this before. Um, I was even the keeper, by the way, because I was into lighthouses and things like that. Um, I would dress up by being this teenager. Her name's Abby Burgess. She was up in Maine. At the age of 14, 15 years old, her dad was on, it, it wasn't really an island, it's a, a rocky ledge and uh, 20 miles off the coast of Maine. And there's two lighthouses, one at each end of that rocky oak crop, taller than Boston Light, 110 feet tall each. And so what would happen is at sunset, You'd go up one tower, light it, come down, walk across a walkway to the other tower, go up and light that. And then during the night, you're just walking back and forth, keeping the lights burning for both of these. And so, again, it was a family lighthouse duty. And Abigail's dad needed to go into town because food was getting low. And they know there were winter storms and what have you. So he took the rowboat. He rode the 20 miles in, and then a storm came. And the seas were so severe that there was uh, the house, and then there had been an addition to the house. And Abigail's mom was a sickly woman and was basically confined to her bed. And with the sea so heavy, Abigail said, you know, you got to get out of the bed here, mom get into the main house, and a wave came and actually washed that addition right off the house. And it was a number of days, I want to say like 12, 13 days before his dad, the dad came back. And one of the things that Abigail had for pets were chickens. And each of the kids and herself and the mom had one egg a day. That's what they were surviving off until the supplies came back. And she kept on maintaining those lights, taking care of her mom, and I think they were um, three um, young children that she was looking after at age 14 and 15. So loving that story, what I would do is go into schools that would like to have a storyteller come, telling the story of Abigail, and I'd dress up and have a basket and have eggs in it. So how are things different now, Sally, now that we're in the 21st century? It's all automated right now. So people say, well, Sally, what do you do with a lighthouse keeper? There mustn't be much to do. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the station is in a, what we call a stewardship transfer, looking for a new owner. 
because the light and the fog signal is totally automated. It, and the Coast Guard goes out there every three months to do maintenance on it. And, and that's it. It runs on its own. So soon there'll be no need for any lighthouse keepers at all, which is really boring, actually. What's going to be lost when there are no lighthouse keepers for the lighthouse at Boston Light? Well, the thing is, is that um, Boston Light is the only manned light station in the entire country. So I'm at right now. You're the last lighthouse keeper in the United States? Yes. It's all automated. Boston Light's automated. I'm, I'm here uh, in my hometown in Weymouth, um, and I'm about seven miles away from the island, and it's... Um, that crystal is turning and putting out its two million candle power. Doesn't need me there. Are you ready to leave it behind when the time comes? I'm working on it. I mean, I knew that when I got hired, it was going to be a temp job. <laughs> <laughs> and that and to 19 years, it's like every year it gets a little, little bit harder. But at least now that I'm not living out there, at least I'm being transitioned. And when the new owner, whoever that might be, because as I said, it's in process, it's um, Little Brewster Island is part of the Boston Harbor Islands National and State Park. Uh, we have 34 islands and peninsulas. So whoever gets the island is going to have to allow the park service to give tours out there. That's going to be part of the agreement. And I've already told the park service that I want to be one of their volunteers. And how do you feel about it all now? You gave up that career in special education to become a lighthouse keeper, and you did it for all those years. And now that time is coming to a close. It's such a gift to have had this job for 19 years. I've never been bored out there. I've always been disappointed when I had to leave. When I go out there to mow the lawn or do whatever, it's like I'm going out for the first time. I, I get excited and I go, little kid in a toy box. You sound like a really, quite a happy and content person, Sally. Is that how you are normally, or has being a lighthouse keeper made you that contented, happy person? It has lit me up. <laughs> I'm, I'm an introvert, and that's why I think that I'm being a lighthouse keeper, I fit the bill, because you could just leave me out there and drop ship my food, and I'll be happy as a clam. It's been amazing to speak with you, Sally. I really enjoyed this conversation and it's just lovely to hear your story. Thank you so much, Sally. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.